0: In a world where it seems like there's so much going wrong, I want you to see the people who are spending their lives doing and seeing the good. Welcome to the Doing Good Podcast, where we discuss the stories of people who are changing the world in their own way. I'm your host, Carmen Herbert. and welcome to Doing Good. I am your host, Carmen Herbert, and today on the podcast, I am very excited to welcome father-son duo Nathaniel and Terrell Gibbons. Terrell Gibbons is a Neil L. Maxwell Senior Fellow at Brigham Young University. He formerly held the University of Richmond's, okay, you're going to have to say, is it Jabez?
1: Yeah, the Jabez <laughs> Bostrick.
0: Javis Boswick Chair of English, where he was a professor of literature and religion. He is the author and co-author of numerous books, including All Things New, The God Who Weeps, and The Crucible of Doubt. And some fun facts. Cheryl Gibbons has authored or co-authored 20 books and counting of Latter-day Saint history, theology, and biography. And his newest book is co-authored with his son, Nathaniel, who is here today. And it's just about to come out, and it's called Into the Headwinds, Why Belief Has Always Been Hard and Still Is. So Nathaniel is published in Deseret Magazine, First Things and Real Clear Religion on the Topics of Faith and Politics. With graduate degrees in economics and systems engineering, he is a data analyst and entrepreneur currently working with an international stop. He is the oldest of 6 kids. Him and his wife have 4 kids, 4 cats, 1 dog and 6 chickens. I have to know if your dog and cats get along.
2: The dog gets along fine with the cats. The cats don't get along well with each other.
0: <laughs> cats don't like the dog, but the dog loves the cats.
2: Well, the cats don't like each other. That's
0: Oh, the- they don't like each other. Oh, well, cause cats are just kind of snooty. You have to like They really earn- are. You have to earn their love and affection. It's, that it just goes across species. I feel like that's so funny. And Nathaniel's favorite musical genre is okay, math rock. Yeah, especially from Japan. I have to know what math rock is.
2: It's a subgenre of progressive rock that has a lot of like time signature changes and kind of complicated rhythms. But yeah, it's kind of an experimental rock. I like it a lot.
0: That is so. It's not like doing algebra like thinking no. about geometry and and, and, no. and <laughs> i'm like i can't even imagine this sounds very it sounds like you have to be really smart to listen and enjoy just something like math rock
2: no i don't think so i don't know much about music i didn't even know what the genre was called until i just found a few bands that i really liked and nobody else had heard of them and i looked them up on wikipedia and i was like oh math rock okay i guess that's what i like
0: math rock that is awesome well i have to be honest i I've, I've, I've been in the music industry for a long time and i've never heard of math rock so i'm gonna have to give some you'll have to send me a list of your favorite artists in math happy rock to do it that you like Awesome. Well, I'm so grateful to both of you for taking the time for coming on this podcast, and you have both done a lot of good in your own lives. And Taro, I'd love to start with you and just ask you, have you always been a questioner? Have you always been a seeker of truth? Is this something that, has, that you've always been throughout your life?
1: Yeah, I think I have been. My father was not a very sociable parent. He didn't interact much with his children. He 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 loved to read, and he would kind of cloister himself in his library and read. And if I wanted to be around my dad, I had to go in there and pick up a book and, and kind of sit next to him and read. So, my earliest memories are of being immersed in his library and uh, I just became an addict at a very early age, I think, of, of reading across a variety of genres, subjects.
0: I love that. And as you're speaking, you, for those that can't see that are listening to the podcast, you have a library behind you of books. Does it remind you of your dad being in your library?
1: Yeah, it does. And many of them come from his library. He ran a, a book business up until the time he died, as do two of my brothers. And so uh, I worked with him for some years. I've always I've always been around books and it's made it easier to collect them.
0: I love it. I've told my husband often my love language is reading because I'm I'm always reading a book. I'm always listening to several books on Audible. It's my escape, it's how I learn about things, it's how I think about things. I love every genre and it books really do have the ability to draw you away from your world not only to inform you and teach you, but to kind of view problems and perspectives from, you know, a fictional character's point of view. And sometimes some of the difficulties or difficult problems I've had in my life, I've been able to look at from different angles by reading classics like Anne of Green Gables or Rebecca or something like that. And so I I also have a great love of reading. And I, I can just picture you as a little child, just sitting by your dad reading a book beside him. And, and that's a really sweet image, just yeah, reading yeah. with your dad.
1: Books are our consolation for only being able to live one life.
0: Oh, that is a beautiful statement. I wholeheartedly agree. Nathaniel, do you read with your dad? I know you've written a book with him, but do you have same memories reading with your dad growing up?
2: Similar memories. My dad was a little friendlier than than his dad. So, <laughs> we also got to play outside together and, you know, play games and stuff. So, it wasn't just reading, but oh yeah, definitely. You know, I've, I grew up in a house where we always had a library, even when we were living in a in a trailer, a single wide trailer. We still had, you know, my memory is that it was a vast library because I was tiny. I'm sure it can't be a vast library in a trailer, but my memory is that it was an entire library. So yeah, always surrounded by books, and and I love to read to this day. I read everything. I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy. I read popular science, biographies, history. Yeah.
0: Okay, so tell me about. Your life growing up. So, were you born? Like, did you start out in a trailer? Like, how many kids lived there when you were when you started? So, I'm interested to know.
2: I I was born when my parents were both still at BYU, so I was born in Utah. But I don't remember. I have no memories of Utah because they moved before that, and they moved a couple of different places. Um, Lynchburg, New York. My first memories are really from when we were in North Carolina, and my dad was in his uh, PhD program. So I'm the oldest of six kids, and I think. We got up to four kids in the trailer before we moved to Richmond when my dad finished his degree. So, so yeah.
0: Wow, Terrell, do you remember those days really well of just being a starving student all throughout <laughs> getting a
1: PhD? Oh yeah, hard to forget those days. And uh, you know, we my my wife and I call ourselves the part of the McConkie Kimball generation. So, you know, the the council then was get married have your children and then worry about how you're going to get an education and a job so we had a lot of children in rapid succession and yeah we were expecting our fifth still living in a mobile home we used to have to have family home meeting in the middle of the trailer because if we had it at either end it would tip so but at least at least you know it was an intimate enough environment that we all were were really close physically and emotionally
0: yes and and probably really bonded together
1: yeah we really we really did, yeah we had a weekly ritual, actually, it's probably more than once a week, but Fiona is a great reader of books out loud, and so my happiest memories of being able to hold all of my children at once in my arms around about while Fiona read us, you know, terrific books of literature.
0: How did you find Fiona seems like she's very well matched with you, personality-wise, and 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 with your love of things, and 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 obviously a great supporter of you and and pursuing education as she's as she's having all these incredible babies and welcoming spirits into your home, and you're working so hard to get your PhD. Was very supportive of that. So how did you meet her? Well, I met her
1: uh, appropriately enough on the very first day of the introduction to comparative literature class <laughs> at BYU. So what? What drew us together was our shared love of literature. She was also a very recent convert and I was a recently returned missionary and I think we both were still fired with the uh, the excitement of, you know, uh, exploring the gospel as adults and students. And we uh, our dates almost always just consisted of long walks around the environs of BYU while we shared our love of literature and music and art. It was a good basis for a marriage.
0: That is amazing. And did you know right off the bat, okay, this this woman is different. She can kind of hang with my way of thinking.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it didn't take long. We dated for, uh, gosh, I guess, six or eight weeks before we were engaged. And then I went on a study abroad and we married when I came back.
0: Six or eight weeks. But here's the thing is when you know, I know they all say, when you know, you know. But truly, I think that there is there is truth to that when you're like, why would I look for anything else. And it seems like both of you with your analytical thinking, like, well, what else is there? This is what I want and this is who I like and why would I pursue anything else? This is what we're going to yeah. do. Yeah, Cheryl was, was there hesitation on her part or was she all in from the beginning too?
1: Well, her story is that she was all in from the beginning. I'll never know if there's another story there.
0: <laughs> it's the right answer. <laughs> Nathaniel, what was it like growing up w- having just two honestly, parents that are brilliant and intellectually minded and seekers of knowledge, were they always trying to teach you and instill that in you? Did you feel like, well, this is just normal. This is how it is. Or was there a point where maybe you're growing up and you're like, wow, my parents are different.
2: I definitely didn't think that at the time because in in our home, it it never felt like, okay, now we're going to teach you a lesson or something, or now we're going to do learning. It was... It was just natural. We're curious. We ask questions. We have conversations. You know, we nothing was off limits. Curiosity was always rewarded. And it that was just but that was just natural. Yeah. It didn't it didn't strike me as like this is a way that my parents are trying to raise me. It right. was just this is the way to be in the world.
0: Right. Right. You,
2: know? so you have thoughts, you share questions, you share different perspectives, and that's just, you know, what everybody does. And no, it wasn't until much later as, as an adult kind of talking, especially as as the whole topic of, of faith crisis has become like so prominent in the Latter-day Saint community and also in the broader Christian community. And as I'm hearing these stories from other folks sharing very, very different experiences of being raised where kind of questioning was bad or having questions was bad and you were just kind of supposed to accept the answers without wondering about the reasons behind them, I'm more and more grateful for the way that I was raised because um, it was never, questioning was never uh, a scary thing, you know? Yeah. Like the pursuit of truth was something, you know, if if you believe the gospel is true, then you should never be scared of the truth. So, there's just yes. this kind of fearlessness of, yeah, of course we'll learn more. Of course we'll explore. Of course we'll, because why, why wouldn't we? You know? And and that, it, to me, is, is you know, one of the real spirits of the restoration, right? We accept truth wherever it comes from. But I was never taught that as like, you know, here's a lesson to learn. I was always just taught that by example. I am just kind of absorbed it.
0: Well, and we are we are asked to ask multiple times in the scriptures. Ask and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Seek and ye shall find multiple times. It's like ask questions, seek out learning, find, find the truth. It says doubt not in the scriptures, but it doesn't ever say ask not. And I think that's an important that's an important difference when people are seeking to know more about the gospel and about there about truth in and of itself and 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 about Jesus Christ and and his life and all things that people have questions about to to know that there's a difference between asking and doubting Tara when you and Fiona were raising your children did you ever have a sit down conversation like okay let's always be very open about our faith and 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 about having them ask questions to us and what we believe or was it just natural be, because you are both so inquisitive raise your children the same way? I think it was natural, I
1: don't remember it ever being a self-conscious point that we raised with each other or deliberated on. I, I, I was fortunate that I also came from a background where, you know, my father was a teacher before he was a bookseller. And I just remember loving family dinners. They were always punctual, always five o'clock. My dad had come home from school and he would share with us what he had been teaching that day or interesting conversations he'd had with colleagues or new discoveries he'd made in his own research into history. And so I was raised in a rich intellectual questioning environment. And I think that just became part of my DNA.
0: Nathaniel, did you ever feel like anything was off limits to talk? To your parents about or did they create the kind of environment that you felt like no matter what question i have even if it's oh no about faith or something that i don't know what they'll think of me if i you know ask this question did you ever feel like anything was off limits or did you always feel open and, and do you still talking with your parents about hard deep questions
2: oh no i, I always felt open and i, and I think one of the one of the reasons for that is my my dad's first book was called The Viper on the Hearth and it was like a survey of anti-mormon kind of literature and sentiment from the 19th century what that means is that when I was in my early teenage years, we had anti-Mormon stuff all around the house, especially old historical anti-Mormon stuff. And so, you know, what's this, dad? Like, why is this here? Oh, you know, I'm researching and studying. And so, it's really hard to have kind of an attitude of like fear or like, let's not talk about it when literally the books are just around the house as part of my dad's research. So, I think, again, it wasn't like something, I don't think he did that on purpose. I don't, he didn't write that book because he wanted to teach his kids, you know, to be fearless, but just because it was, you know, the natural part of his research and because we had you know that kind of stuff lying around, and if I wanted to ask questions, and I did, and so I asked questions, and then we talked about it, and I learned a ton. And again, there's absolutely no sense of fear or like you know, don't talk about these topics. Everything was was open for discussion.
0: I love that, and and it is true that Satan works in darkness, and he does work in fear, and tries to keep us questioning and or or doubting and worried about things, and. Terrell, did you find that, I mean, y- you you must have had a pretty rock-solid testimony to be able to read those kinds of things and not let it shake your testimony, or did you go into it thinking, well, if this is true, it can stand on its own two feet, and I don't need to be worried about what I find.
1: No, that was a very self-conscious attitude with which I engaged in that first research project. I I, I think it was attributed to, was it Henry Eyring's father who, who once said, you won't ever you won't ever be asked to believe anything that isn't true, or you don't. You're not. There's no requirement. There's no moral responsibility to believe anything if it isn't true. And I just had this strong conviction going in, for example, that if the Book of Mormon can't withstand the most rigorous interrogation and scrutiny, if the Restoration can't withstand the most rigorous interrogation and in questioning, then they don't deserve my loyalty. And so I, I think that was the attitude. It was the only attitude with which one can confront, as I think I tried to do, this entire history of anti-Mormonism and critiques of the Book of Mormon and our history.
0: Did you find that they do deserve your loyalty? They do indeed. Yeah,
1: I I came out only strengthened by by the investigations that I made.
0: I love that. Nathaniel, do you feel like you have ever had really deep questions about your faith that have shaken you? Or do you feel like you've been pretty consistent and believing growing up, especially with in the gospel of Jesus Christ and believing the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints?
2: So, I'm a little weird in that I did have a major faith crisis, but it had nothing to do with religion. Oh. When I was a teenager growing up, I really had this idea that, The point of learning was to have certain knowledge. And so I believed that you could be absolutely certain, you could prove things mathematically and you could know for absolute fact. And I just took for granted that that's what knowledge was about and that's what you're trying to do. And when I went to college and did an intro to modern Western philosophy and we studied Descartes, I won't go into all the details, but Descartes basically practiced an experiment where he did the opposite. And he was like, you know, what if we doubt that our senses are telling us things? What if we doubt this? What if we doubt that? And that's why he gets to that famous expression, I think therefore I am. That's the expression he gets to when he's doubted everything else. And I was convinced that he was right, that we can doubt our senses, we can doubt the world around us, we can doubt all of these things. And then most philosophers agree that once Descartes got down to the only thing I can know for certain is that I exist, he tried to rebuild his whole philosophy and nobody really thinks that part worked. So everybody kind of agrees that the, demol- that the demolition works, but that the rebuilding didn't work. And so I was in a profound, really like seriously depression for a couple of weeks after that, because I'd had this whole idea that I was going to know things for certain and that I was going to be able to rule doubt and question out of my life. And after coming across that, I had to give up on that whole notion and I had to rebuild what is my life going to look like if everything I believe is always going to have the possibility of being wrong. And, and I meant everything. Like is the sun going to rise tomorrow? Almost certainly, but you can't actually say 100%. Like there's there's n- there's no such thing as certainty. And so I rebuilt everything without certainty. And so when it came to like faith crisis and, and, and a lot of those questions, no, I never really had any concerns, or at least they were not any more concerning than anything else. Is it possible that God is not real? Yes. It's also possible that the sun doesn't rise. Okay. So what? What are you going to actually believe? What do you think is more likely? What, what makes more sense? Um, and in my life, I have never found that anything makes more sense than the restored gospel again and again I haven't always taken it as seriously as I should. so there have been times in my life where my testimony wasn't very strong, but that wasn't because of doubts it wasn't because I had questions that didn't have answers. It was because I wasn't doing the work but as as long as I've just been open and honest and trying to do the basics and trying to ask questions sincerely I've, I've never found any other explanation for life that makes more sense than the restored gospel
0: well i think you bring up an interesting point because if you do think about it logically and you just go back to the basics like why is good and evil innate inside of us why does a little boy help his friend up and feel good about himself when he does that what is that feeling of that made me feel good inside when i helped someone who gave him that feeling It, it was something are we born with light and darkness and if we are what are those sources is it a person is it an energy is it a what is it what it, what is the source of the light and darkness and for me as you stated the most logical thing would be a god in heaven a creator it's someone that planted that within us that that makes even logically thinking because i've had friends that that have said how can you logically believe that this is actually true. And I'm like, to me, it makes the most logical sense. What, Like, what else would it be? When I go back to what else would, would the light and darkness be? What other sources would they come from? But, But I know that there are a lot of people that have been really struggling with this concept lately of what can I know? Is it possible to have a perfect knowledge of things? And if I don't, then I don't know about everything else. If I can't know this and I can't prove this, then I don't know. And Terrell, you and Fiona are part of the Faith Matters organization, which kind of tackles these big questions of these ambiguous things of how can we know for absolute certainty of a God and if the God is the God of you know the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that the Savior is real and this is His gospel, and face those head on and talk about them How have you, I guess, logically been able to sort this out in your life? I know you talked about studying the anti-Mormon literature and kind of proving that that doesn't prove the church wrong, but how have you been able to answer, or are you still answering these questions in your own life?
1: Well, I'm still working through all kinds of questions in my own life, but a couple things I would say about reason and rationality and the grounds for faith. You know, we operate from day to day, moment by moment, on the basis of reason but also on the basis of intuition and moral sensibility and conscience and aesthetic response and so the, the first point that, that I, i've learned that has been formative in my own faith journey is to recognize that there are various ways of knowing there are various faculties with which we are endowed that allow us to respond to the world at different levels and by different mechanisms, some physical, some emotional, some sensory, and some spiritual, and that those are all legitimate ways of coming to understand the nature of this reality in which we are immersed. The second point that, that for example, Nathaniel and I make in our recent book is that, you know, most people know what deduction is. You have an absolute truth and you derive corollaries from that, or you see the sun rise every day and so you infer that it will rise tomorrow. That's induction. But most of the time, we operate on the basis of what's called abduction, which means we simply come up with a scenario that makes the best sense of the available evidence. So, my little child gets chickenpox. Well, I know that last night they were at a slumber party. Okay, we don't know for sure, but the most reasonable abduction is that that, those circumstances and background make sense of why they have chickenpox today. I think faith often builds upon abduction. As Nathaniel said, the Restoration makes a whole series of propositions about the nature of God, of reality, of the human spirit, and the explanations that the Restoration give, to my mind, make the most sense of our experience of the world, our experience of good and evil, our experience of spiritual intimations. So, I I think that, that it's perfectly reasonable and rational to practice faith, even if that's faith in the absence of certainty. And the reason why Fiona and I participate in the Faith Matters organization and are on the board is because we believe that this is the best current organization we have found that finds a a really magnificent synthesis between faithfulness to Christ, unstinting devotion to discipleship, while making room to, to vigorously ask questions and engage in conversations about the nature of faith. I think it's really important to distinguish between faith and faithfulness in this regard. This is another point that Nathaniel and I make in this, in this book, Headwinds, is that faithfulness means a, a bedrock commitment to Christ. But faith means assent to a whole series of propositions about the nature of Scripture and the nature of prophets and the nature of revelation. And we can continually be in process of reformulating our grasp of those concepts without calling into question the fundamental commitment we've made to Christ. And that's a synthesis that I think makes for, for healthy discipleship.
0: So, what would you say to people who think, okay, well, if, if we're talking about faith, and using all of our senses em- emotionally and logically thinking about things and, and, and intellectually thinking about things. What would you say? W- that, well, then how can you, how can you deduct that this is the true church? If you're using all of those, well, let's emotionally and logically and intellectually think about this for those that come to different conclusions. Is there an absolute truth? In the gospel of Jesus Christ, and is there a possibility for all of us to come to that truth, or does it depend on life circumstance and how they were raised and, and, and their emotional intelligence and all those other things?
1: Well, I certainly think we are open and receptive to, to truth at different levels and in, in different stages of our life journeys. And I think, and, and this again is one of the principal themes in, in our book, Into the Headwinds, is that we are Enormously conditioned by everything from environment to genetics, to life experience, to to subconscious processes that are always at work formulating hypotheses and and beliefs. but that but what that what that all that tells me is that the perfect, complete grasp of truth may always be just a little bit over the horizon, but there is certainly a trajectory on which we can situate ourselves that is moving in that direction. And that's I think the journey of faith always is. I don't think that we'll all ever come to a complete consensus about that truth this side of the River Jordan, but I think we can certainly be engaged in a collaborative project where we share basic faith commitments along that journey.
0: Nathaniel, was it your idea or your dad's for this book? I'd love to talk about this, the into the, Head- into the Headwinds, why belief has always been hard and still is. Who kind of came up with this concept, or when did you start discussing, hey, this would be a really great thing to write about and di- dive deeper into?
1: I'm glad you asked that question. Go ahead and tell her truthfully. That. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the first...
2: My dad and I talk about this stuff all the time. So a lot of the content in the book is just the type of thing that we talk about all the time anyways. But really, the the, the, the first draft was was mine and it wasn't complete. So I, I tackled kind of, especially, we, we do a lot of science in this, a lot of popular science, like at a popular level. So you don't have to read too many academic papers or anything. You know, how does cognition work? How do people form beliefs? What are cognitive biases all about? And I've been fascinated for a long time and writing for a long time about the kind of intersection of these concepts and faith. And and so I kind of wrote that portion awesome. um, and, and then I, I wanted help <laughs> and I said, hey, dad, how, about we, how about we work <laughs> on this together? And yeah, it, it, I, I didn't have a whole book. And so my dad came in and, and kind of went through the stuff that I'd written and then added a, a ton. And and from that point on, we just started working on it together. But yeah.
0: So this might seem like a silly question, but why is belief so hard and and why is it? so important.
2: So that's a a big question and it's kind of why we wrote the book. That's why you uh, wrote the
0: book. Yes.
2: Yeah, but I would say one of the important things to say is, is it's difficult by design. Faith is is supposed to be a little bit hard in the same sense in which I think actually this, there was a, a a quote from General Conference just recently. I can't remember who said it, but it was somebody's mom said it's supposed to be hard. And and, and a lot of parts of life are su- supposed to be hard. That doesn't mean they're supposed to be bad. That doesn't mean that every yeah. terrible thing that happens is intended by God. I don't believe that at all. A lot of what happens down here that's bad is just random chance or, or people making terrible decisions. But it is supposed to be difficult for the same reason that exercising is supposed to be difficult. Yeah, you know, it's, it's when we challenge ourselves, that's how we grow. And the purpose of coming down here to experience mortal life, it's not just a test, like, let's find out what kind of person you are. It's, it's, It's about the growth. It's about becoming more like our heavenly parents. And growth is always a little uncomfortable. And it's always a little bit hard. And faith is part of that. So... And that's kind of one of, the, one of the points we make early on in the book is that one of the problems that, you know, if you're looking at all of Christianity together as, as a group of people, not as a theology, one of the problems Christianity has had over the last thousand years or whatever is that it's gotten a little too easy. In those parts of the world where everybody's Christian, it doesn't ask much of you to say, oh, yeah, sure, I'm Christian too. I'll affiliate with that, you know, but that affiliation, it can be shallow, because it's it's not forcing you to make any tough choices, it's not forcing you to make any sacrifices. Faith becomes real when you have to actually make sacrifices or when you have to, you know, choose you know, your beliefs when it's costly. And so why is faith difficult? I think the most important response to that is because it's supposed to be, because that's how we grow.
0: It's true. And I think about, you know, when this is a very elementary way of, of describing it, but when you're tired and you're laying in bed and you don't want to get out of bed and you're exhausted, and there comes a point where if you stay still for too long, you're restless, and it's it's almost uncomfortable to stay stagnant. More so, I would say, than when you get up and start moving your body, getting ready for the day, doing things. And I think about that sometimes with faith and belief, like you said, that it's—it's it, I, I think you make an important point. It it's it's not necessarily bad, but it is hard. And there is a difference it, when you're challenging yourself and stretching yourself to learn and grow and and experience trials, it is difficult, but it's it's good. It's like you're exercising those muscles and it feels better than being stagnant, than not learning, than staying comfortable. I find that sometimes when I'm like, oh, life seems really good right now, there's almost, almost an undercurrent of restlessness with being too comfortable to the point where I'll be like, do we need to move? Or, you know, when I, we were younger, do we need to have another baby? Or do you need to look for another job? Something. And we're like, wait, why would we mess this up? Life is wonderful right now. It's perfect, but there, there's not growth happening. And so when there's when, when you're stretching yourself and you're challenging yourself and growing, even if it is hard, you naturally feel better. You feel like you're progressing, and that's what I think the spirit longs for. What are your thoughts, Terrell, on that? Well, I think that's
1: absolutely true. I, you know, I'd, I'd emphasize, again, what Nathaniel pointed out, that you know, all these Pew studies that we read about, all of this, the rise of the nuns, all of those statistics are really meaningless if we fail to differentiate simple association and affiliation from actual commitment. And it's very hard to devise a survey instrument that will actually measure how committed are you to God versus, versus 10 years ago. And so... We're trying to get down to the, the bare knuckles of what faith really is constituted of. And as Nathaniel said, faith is an effortful engagement. It is an effort filled responsiveness to promptings, to intimations, to conditions in the world that invoke a response. And so faith has to be something that is very, very deliberately chosen, it has to be something that is, is very deliberately powered from within. And in that sense, it's very much like love, right? Nicholas Walsdorf, the great theologian, said, there is no love that is not suffering love. To love is to make oneself vulnerable. And in a very parallel fashion, to exercise faith is to make oneself vulnerable because you're exposing yourself to risk, to the possibility that you are wrong, to the possibility that you will be betrayed or deceived. And so, I think it takes a particular kind of moral courage to exercise faith in in a secular environment in particular but in fact that's always been the case
0: your title of the book into the headwinds suggests that it is difficult and it is challenging and there's going to be resistance there's and a lot of it do you think that that is something that we need to expect as we exercise our faith and and belief that there's going to be opposition. It's going to be difficult. We will face those headwinds. And how can we, how can we face them without letting them blow us over and knock us down say, I give up, too hard, too difficult, I don't want to do it anymore?
2: I mean, yeah, we have right from the scriptures that we should expect opposition in all things, and that's going to include faith. I, I do think it's it's important to like differentiate between the types of difficulty, right? When we say something is hard to believe, like that expression, what it means is that just something just doesn't seem implausible. And that's not the kind of difficulty we're talking about necessarily because, you know, as my dad said earlier, you, you never have to believe anything that's not true. Sure. Um, so, sometimes there's these kind of caricatures from people outside of a religious community who kind of have a rationalist or a science, they're, they're into scientism, which is not the same as rational or, or science, where, you know, they think that faith is just, de- is something likely to be true, yes or no. And if you're having difficulty accepting it, well, then it's probably not true, so you'd be fooled to accept it.
0: That's or not the not type of- your th- truth, right.
2: Yeah, and that's not the type of difficulty we're talking about. This isn't about encouraging people to believe things that are actually unlikely. Right. Um, what it is about is digging a little bit deeper into why things are hard to believe, and sometimes it's not because they're unlikely, sometimes it's because it's an uncomfortable truth. Right. Sometimes it's because you 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 don't want to accept something because it might say you know put you in a bad light or because it might be unpopular. Now those kinds of difficulties you should accept as they're going to be likely, and those kind of difficulties shouldn't discourage you from belief. If something is unlikely, then you might not want to believe it. If something is unpopular, that shouldn't affect you. If something isn't as comforting as you wanted, that shouldn't affect you. So yeah, there's 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 these types of difficulties that we absolutely should expect to encounter. They're part of why we're here. It's part of the opposition in all things. And, you know, we should be prepared to to kind of confront those headwinds, you know, head on. And, And the last thing I want to add on here is that I think a lot of people who are critical of faith think that there is a neutral option. Like, you could just not believe. That's not actually true. You're going to believe something. The question is, what do you choose to believe? And so if somebody says, this doesn't seem like the most true thing, there's something that seems more true, great. If you're embracing greater truth, that's awesome. But when people are just like, well, I'm just not so sure anymore, I just kind of give up. No, that means you're actually accepting something else, but you're not thinking about what it is that you're accepting. There, there is some other belief waiting in the wings to take over. And if you just kind of abdicate and say, well, it's it's too tough, you know, I quit, you're not actually just stopping believing, you're changing your belief from one thing to something else. And what I'd want to encourage everybody is you should always believe things that you think are the most true or the most likely, and that means you always are moving from one thing to something else that is even more true. You should never retreat, because because you got to believe something.
1: If I could just could add, I think there's another dimension to these headwinds that we often are oblivious to, the the. Public intellectual David French wrote an article recently in which he said, you know, there's a really important distinction that needs to be made between Christianity and Christendom. And what he meant by that was that Christianity might be a set of aggregate beliefs about Christ. Christendom is the cultural formation that arises out of those religious beliefs. And the same thing is true of Latter-day Saint beliefs and what we could call Latter-day Saint culture. And, you know, I I recently wrote a biography of Gene England, right, one of the the most influential intellectuals of the 20th century in the church. And he lived a very tragic life, ended up being fired from BYU and disenfranchised by by many of his co-religionists. And it was because he kept emphasizing the gulf between the gospel taught in the scriptures and by restoration prophets. And all kinds of cultural norms that had made their way into Mormonism that he felt were inconsistent with those gospel truths. Now, we may disagree about how we we turn belief into culture, but the important principle here is that, and and somebody said this at conference, I wish I could remember, it was just, just last week, who it was who said that we have to own our testimonies and another expression that was used is that we have to make our covenant path personal. So there's a sense I think in which we often have to be prepared to stand against the headwinds of prevailing currents in our own Latter-day Saint culture and make sure that our discipleship is one that is born out of a personal experience, having having made God present in our lives rather than imbibing, right, a cultural set of norms and calling that discipleship.
0: I think that incredibly important differentiation and I completely agree, Nathaniel, with what you were saying that it, you can't just you can't just say I don't believe in anything because if you don't believe in something, just by default, you are believing in something else, and so you can't just say I'm giving up. And I, well, you can, but but you still are believing in, in something else. And so I think your when you said you know we should always be building upon something, which is also in the Book of Mormon, talks about further light and knowledge, line upon line, precept on precept, building until the light does grow brighter and in my personal experience i found that when i do take the time and face the opposition and 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 put in the effort that that light does come heavenly father doesn't withhold it but but you have to seek it sometimes and 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 put in the effort to find it and then it does come and and i found that for for myself, with friends or family members that have been struggling right now and, and are on a different faith journey than I am, when you begin to doubt and move away and stop seeking, that the scripture that says then the light and knowledge that they have is taken away, that which they have is, is taken away. And it's interesting that I'm like, you knew, you knew this at one point. You believe this and you knew this, and then we'll have discussions where they're like, wait. What are you talking about? I'm confused about that. And so we have to be moving forward, where we will move backward. And I I love what you said, Terrell, about it, it, it's important to constantly be, you know, building upon what we believe, and and also giving ourselves, I think, patience and being able to say it's it's not. I'm not. I'm I'm not you know a a bad person or an unbeliever if I am questioning or or wondering about something but that you can use that to really improve your faith and become more knowledgeable in any subject that that you want to and and that do you feel Nathaniel and Terrell that there maybe isn't an answer to every any to every question in the church but there's at least a piece that can come with. Seeking it out, that you can at least get to a point where you think, I feel peaceful about this, even if it is an unpopular or uncomfortable truth.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad. I'd like to get Nathaniel's answer too, but I'm glad you asked that question because, you know, it strikes me that Latter day Saints have just inherited this embattled kind of collective psyche. Right? We've been under siege, we've been persecuted, we've been marginalized. That continues to the present moment, right? With Hulu specials and pseudo-documentaries and and Book of Mormon musicals. And so we spend our lives trying to convince the world and ourselves. Yes. Our is legitimate. Our faith is legitimate. And because it's a a never-ending process, it, it seems to me that peace is generally lacking in our spiritual lives and in our encounters with the world. And sometimes I envy a certain kind of evangelical stance, right, which is just full of optimism and confidence. Christ won the victory, right? Nothing is in doubt. The end is known. And and because the restoration is a process, that also kind of tends to make us think, yeah, we're not quite there, you know, And, and certainly we're not there yet, but I think that we need to dig deep and find greater reservoirs of confidence in the direction of the path that as individuals and as a movement, we are, we are proceeding along.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I really agree with that. There's so much more room for kind of optimism. Are, are, are all our questions going to be answered? No, there's, there's just no way that in this life they will all be answered. Can we find peace with that? I think it might always be troubling. I don't think that we might necessarily i would I would phrase it a little a little bit differently. I think we can find meaning. And pain and and even suffering to an extent, they're not so bad when there's meaning in it, when we understand that we're a part of something. So I both believe that overall we could we could do a little bit more optimism and a little bit more confidence because our evangelical brothers and sisters are right when they're confident that Christ already won the victory, that the end is not in doubt. They're right. We believe that too. We just maybe don't emphasize it as much as we should. So, no harm in learning from folks who have really good habits, and they do. And then when it comes to individual questions, just accept the discomfort, maybe a little bit, you know, because some things don't get fixed in this life. That's true of our questions. For some people, it's true of physical conditions. You know, not everything is okay in this life. But that's okay. If we have faith that the victory has been won, and if we know that the end is not in doubt. And so those two things really go together. When you can have that optimistic vision and that real confidence that Christ is king, then he's going to set all things right. If you have that overall optimism, then you can learn to live with the things that don't go away. And some of those are going to be questions and all of us have different trials, different tragedies in our lives, different, you know, different wounds that aren't healed in this life. And you know, they're not going to stop hurting, but we can still have hope.
0: I love that. And I agree with both of you. I I do think that there are some questions that I don't know will be answered in this life, or maybe at least answer to my satisfaction that makes me feel like, oh, okay, now I understand that makes me feel better. But I agree also with you, Terrell, when you say that there is a peace that we can have even amidst the discomfort that Nathaniel's talking about. I think that we can have both. We can feel like, I don't understand this. It's a little confusing to me, but peace is a gift from the Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to hurry and wrap up and ask people, where can they buy your book? When does it come out and where will it be available for purchase? Our book is available on Amazon as of right now.
1: And I was just notified today that the Kindle version should be available within a week or two. So by the end of October, both the Kindle and the print version should be available
0: perfect. And this book is called Why Belief, or Into the Headwinds, Why Belief Has Always Been Hard and Still Is. Thank you so much, Terrell and Nathaniel, for coming on my podcast today, for talking about really important things. I feel like I should have gotten a better night's sleep before I talked with you because you are both so brilliant and intellectual, and I feel like I had just mom brain most of the time. And I don't even know if my answers or questions were coherent. But you two are amazing. You are doing so much good in our faith community. And I'm so grateful that you are sharing your message with others. I can't wait to check out your book. Thank you both so much. Thank
1: you, Cameron. It's been great. Need so good conversation.
0: Thank you. I am Carmen Herbert, and I'm so excited to tell you about an amazing app that my whole family loves. It's called Our Turtle House, and it's full of literally thousands of hours of full-length talks, just like the old talk on CDs or talk on tapes, from some of your favorite Latter-day Saint speakers, like John By The Way, Mick Johnson, Hank Smith, me, and a ton more. Plus, there's podcasts, firesides, devotionals, Come Follow Me resources, and entertaining content Your whole family will enjoy, truly, all in one little app. And you can use promo code DOINGGOOD, all one word, at checkout, and you get a full month free. So check it out and sign up at OurTurtleHouse.com. See you soon.